Good afternoon. Welcome back to Sit Down for a Toss Up. I'm Adam Bass, and today we've got another up and coming political analyst. He's from Yale. He knows his Massachusetts politics well better than I do, and he's currently studying in the in the politics of uh, not Connecticut of Colorado's third congressional district. Please welcome Armin Thomas. Armin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Really glad to be here. I'm glad for you to be here too. You you uh I uh, like your I like your style, your setup. I like that painting in the background over there. Oh, <laughs> this is just uh, this is just in my room here in New Haven. Yeah. Yeah, New Haven, beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, let's start off with your story. Um, you know, you're you're graduating Yale this year. Um, you know, s- still a senior, and yet you are pretty knowledgeable about politics for someone uh, of your caliber. So why don't you uh, tell your story about how you got into pol- or not got into, but uh, start to learn about politics and the political yeah. process. So, uh, I mean, I really didn't know too much or care too much about politics growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my parents were somewhat political. I mean, in Massachusetts, most people are, you know, pretty staunch Democrats. Um, and uh, so I, you know, it's that, that filtered a little bit, but I still didn't really care too much. It all changed when Trump became uh, you know, a big force in our national political discourse, because all of a sudden, uh, you know, he has that effect of, you know, taking people who normally weren't interested in politics on both sides and galvanizing them to turn out. And I was one of them. Uh, and when he won, uh, I was surprised. And, you know, I will admit I was disappointed and very sad. And so I began to think to myself, you know, this is an important juncture in our political history as a country there's lots of different cross currents that are probably coming to a head that are creating this particular moment. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, get to the bottom of it. And so when I came to college, uh, I got involved in political activism on campus and, you know, just started learning, talking to people and just soaking in as much information as I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I discovered a lot of people like Miles and Drew and other, you know, other people who are now my friends uh, on Twitter, I think, around the time of the Alabama Senate election. And mm-hmm. that was like the, the thing that really got me into like data and modeling and looking at counties and things like that. Um, right. So yeah, no, it's really just been on the up and up from there. Uh, what about uh, obviously uh, with coronavirus uh, still very much a part of our society right now, the internet and connections with uh, people in the political world are important, but what about the real world? Uh, as you say, when you went to Yale, you took as much information as you could. Um, what was the information that you took outside of of social media me- media networks, or even just books, for that matter? Well, yeah. So in in the great before days, uh, in the great before days, you know, when in person things were actually done on mass, uh, I, I really am a proponent of the idea that. If you're trying to be a political analyst, you know, getting into the campaign space is very important and there's really no substitute for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when I uh, did stuff uh, organizing on various campaigns, uh, you know, obviously a lot of that was remote, but I still understood how a lot of the things worked and some mm-hmm. of the challenges they went through war. And in the process, you know, politics is uh, you, you get to learn a lot about the people who are running campaigns and the people they're trying to reach. Because, uh, you know, in my opinion, politics is ultimately about people. You know, you can talk about counties and districts and geography, right. but it's people who are on them that are making the votes. As, as Tip would say, politics is all local. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. yes. Tip, Tip knows what he's talking about. Yes, he does. Uh, may he rest in peace. Um, but yeah, that, that does seem to be a common uh, theme amongst uh, some of the, some of the uh, veteran political analysts like John, uh, John Colvoon of 
Louisiana. Cuvion, yeah. Cuvion, thank you. Uh, I still get those names wrong. It's hard to pronounce Louisiana names. It's um, French, yeah. Yeah, it's French. You know, I took two, I took two years of French and I still can't pronounce it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in a way, he says that it's about paying your dues to work on a campaign, regardless of it being Republican, Democrat, or Independent. Right. Um, yeah, and what I'm curious about is why do you think some people who are part of the poli- of the political analyst world are hesitant to join campaigns? Because that does seem to be a common theme. It's true. Uh, so I have a number of theories. I think one, right off the bat, um, I think pe- joining a particular campaign might, you know, hinder your self-analysis of how objective you think you are because you're picking a side, you know, whether it's Democrat or Republican, and you might see some things on mm-hmm. one side that differ with some things on the other side. Uh, then the second thing is, uh, I mean, some people, you know, just, uh, I mean, there's a certain skill set and a certain mindset that you need to do to do well in the campaigning world that doesn't necessarily always translate well to, you know, the world of political an- analysis or punditry or whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, and so I think a lot of people uh, on election Twitter who, you know, kind of want to do one but not the other, uh, either, you know, recognize that they might not have the skill set to do that transfer very well uh, or are just are just hesitant for some other reason. I mean, those are the main two things I can think of. I, I do think one other thing that isn't really talked about is the data versus social mindset of uh, politics. You know, some people are very much in the data camp. Uh, and some people are very much in the social camp, usually the analysts versus the organizers. And it doesn't have to be that way at all. You, no, you, no, it doesn't. Yeah, go on about that. Like, why do you think – how do you think you could bridge uh, between those two groups? Well, so the way I look at it is uh, – I mean, I have uh, – I mean, I've worked on some campaigns, but I wasn't like, you know, an organizer who took a semester or two off mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, work on a campaign. That said, uh, you know, organizers are good people and they have a job to do, which is to try and get as much support and build as much hype as they possibly can mm-hmm. for their candidate. And, you know, analysts, on the other hand, you know, they're working on the other side and they have uh, a duty to the campaign, which is, you know, uh, to no BS, just tell what is going to happen, how it's going to happen and, you know, where the important places to hit. Uh, uh-huh. Oftentimes that means that, uh, you know, Democratic organizers in, say, you know, rural Texas uh, are going to be left out of that picture because, you know, they're not, you know, on the path of least resistance to winning the election because ultimately these are tough races. And, you know, you want to you want to try and get uh, 50 percent plus one of the vote. Right. Right. Uh, And so I don't really think it's a question of which one is more important. I mean, because, you know, analysis and data can point out trends, Mm -hmm. but Trends are not things that are set in stone that, you know, are fixed and, you know, that are, you know, this thing that we all must worship, you know, trends do not make elections. Elections make trends. I will, I will repeat this to my dying day. Mm. I, you know, who, who, you know, who saw the, uh, you know, the educational polarization uh, that was coming the way it, that was happening everywhere in South Texas and who sent organizers down there to actually make it happen. It was the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Biden campaign, you know, thought they had it in the bag for granted and they didn't see these trends coming. Uh, And, you know, if the Trump campaign didn't make that decision, uh, you know, granted, I'm sure Lakshya's model would, you know, say that it would still swing. Right. Yeah. Uh, But it wouldn't you know, it wouldn't swing as dramatically to the right as uh, as as some would say. So I definitely think that, yeah, the the data side 
explains a lot of the good picture, but ultimately, uh, you know, the people who knock doors day in and day out and all that in, in close races, that stuff really does make the difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like that quote. Uh, Trends do not make elections. That's a great one. Uh, I want to go back to your local work for a minute here. You write for Elections Daily. I had the Elections Daily Five on the show a while back. Yeah, yeah. They're great guys. They are very much fantastic. I do love how they respect one another. And I want to talk about a recent article you wrote about Massachusetts. Um, You have said – well, yes. I actually have it pulled up because you know that's what us journalists do. We always have uh, uh, (laughs) evidence on board. So so – uh, here you say that the Massachusetts Democratic Party has uh, stretched out its tent, its big tent, containing a whole bunch of voters far enough. Uh, and as we saw in the uh, Suffolk 19 race, for those oh boy. <laughs> it, trust me, I, I, we're going to do a cod cabin on that, and it's not going to be pretty. Um, you know, it, the Massachusetts Democratic Party is a big tent. It has uh, progressive voters, it has blue collar voters, and, you know, I want I want your the thought process when you started writing that article for Elections Daily and what what you were thinking when you sort of drew out those conclusions. Well, yeah. So I wrote the article mainly because, um, as you know, uh, our good friend Alex is another one of the our political analysts who looks at the leans of different precincts mm-hmm. all around the state of Massachusetts. Yes. And he, you know, one of his big things is that you know heavily Hispanic, heavily Latino, heavily. Uh, you know, blue collar minority heavy areas uh, swung very dramatically to the right. Uh, You know, they're still democratic, a lot of them, but relative to the state, they're not as democratic as they used to be. Um, And so that got me thinking, you know, uh, currently the path for a Republican to win statewide is uh, one, you know, being a really democratic, this is as a non-incumbent, by the way, one, being a very red year, Mm -hmm. number two, uh, you know, be a very good candidate, and number three, run against someone named Martha Coakley. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's not something that happens very often. Uh, yeah. And, but then I, I got thinking, you know, we all thought South Texas was Democratic. It's been Democratic for 140 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no reason, you know, the thinking that just because something hasn't happened means it can't happen is, right. you know, that, that's, not, that's not scientific. It's not rational. So I was thinking, you know, with these new internal shifts, you know, we're starting to see areas like Bernardston and Phillipston and Athol and Templeton out in, you know, Central and West, Coleraine, Holly, mm-hmm. all of those. Where? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they're all getting more Republican relative to the state. They're still Democratic, but, uh, you know, in a bad enough environment for Democrats, could there hypothetically be a path, you know, with a new, more, you know, Trumpian coalition, if you will? For the Republicans. Uh, now, I did hi- I did say that you know, given how inelastically blue a lot of the metropolitan Boston suburbs are becoming, that is, this is a very unlikely scenario. Mm-hmm. But I was I was spelling out I you know I was just analyzing the data that was on the table there, um, and you know the Senate uh, primary with Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy was a good uh, was a good proxy for this because uh, Ed Markey basically did well in all of them uh, and uh, basically everywhere around the state he won all. Uh, won eight out of nine congressional districts, I believe, except for the one that Kennedy had in the House, which was um, Massachusetts four containing Fall River and Bristol County. Yeah, well, well, part of Fall River, the other parts in nine. Uh, right, for some you're reason. right. You're the expert. Um, <laughs> um and uh, yeah, so I mean, Kennedy did well there, but uh, 
and and out in some you know really small towns out in central Massachusetts. I don't remember exactly which ones, but they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of those uh, voters, uh, you know, they had the chance to make their voice heard, but the people of Massachusetts spoke. You know, they want you know Warren Markey type progressivism to be sent to D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that's just not in line with what a lot of uh, you know the the Kennedy voters wanted you know they wanted kennedy progressivism which is you know a different style it's a different you know aesthetic right um, well, what do you so, mean by that by the way i am curious what is kennedy progressivism um well kennedy progressivism is uh it's difficult to define i mean it mostly in my opinion centers on you know the fact that he is a kennedy and so <laughs> he is imbued with you know sort of a mandate of heaven from his ancestors <laughs> to you know do things in a way that you know someone like ed markey who is, you know, very much, uh, you know, just a, a more like normal Massachusetts politician without any dynastic, uh, you know, blood running in his veins uh, doesn't have. So uh, that's what that's what I think the, you know, the difference between Markey and Kennedy progressivism is. There really wasn't too much daylight between them on the issues. I mean, as, as you've mentioned before, the, the primary basically boiled down to has, you know, there's that Twitter account, has Joe Kennedy given a good reason for running? Mm-hmm. And the voters emphatically said, no, he hasn't. Right. Um, but evidently, some people in Kennedy's district thought that he had. Uh, and so, you know, eventually, the Democrats in the state, you know, they could potentially have some sort of overreach. Uh, you know, the fact that Charlie Baker is there running the show uh, as a governor probably prevents that for some time. But down the line, uh, you know, if a Democrat does, you know, become very progressive and tries to take the state in a very a hard left direction, uh, you know, Massachusetts is not a hard left state. It's just not, you know, in, when you take a look at the whole state mm-hmm. and the GOP in the state, if they, you know, are competent, they would try to capitalize on it and take advantage of some of these newfound trends in Fall River and New Bedford and out West and out in the center right. uh, in the state. Are, will they do that? I don't know, because, you know, you can fit their state Senate caucus on a tandem bike and, you know, they're a very incompetent state party. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we'll have to see about that, you know. Yeah. Right. I, I do want to move on to a future prospect that you've been talking about, and that is Colorado's third district. This is the district oh. that elected uh, uh, Lauren Boebert. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, yes, and you are even you are you have even considered uh, moving to that district and even covering their face to face. Now, why why this district in particular? Out, out of all the districts in uh, the country, you know, I think of like Texas's uh, second district with Dan Crenshaw, or maybe even uh, Wisconsin's first. Uh, you know, wh- why this one in particular? What made you attracted to Colorado three? Yeah, so uh, I mean, basically, you know, I I I, I like mapping uh, when you know when I made back in the day when I used to make a lot more of election maps and things, I used to like mapping, you know, big rural districts that Democrats held. Uh, And, you know, obviously with recent national swings in, you know, rural urban polarization, winning Mm -hmm. big rural districts has become considerably more difficult for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Colorado's third is one of those that, you know, isn't, you know, fully far gone. Uh, The other thing is, it's a very diverse district. You have a lot of different uh, aspects that you know all kind of have their own different countervailing trends uh which i definitely think is just very interesting to cover uh Mm -hmm. and you know from an election twitter perspective i mean lots of people have you know their pet 
you know, states or districts or whatever it is. I mean, some people have, you know, like Miles has Robinson County in North Carolina that he loves talking about, you know, Jackson has Kansas, uh, you know, Colorado just kind of became my thing, you know, uh, and especially given that, you know, I mean, it's probably very clear by now, but I do, you know, lean at least a little bit toward the Democratic side. Uh, Lauren Boebert has, uh, you know, she's very much tacked hard to the right. Uh, and in terms of, you know, the new crop of, you know, arch conservative pro-Trump Republicans, Lauren Boebert sits in a district that actually could be won by a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Madison Cawthorn does not. Marjorie Taylor Greene does not. Lauren Boebert does. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Colorado Democratic Party is very strong. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're going to do, you know, their damnedest to try and get rid of her. And so I think there's lots of cool things to be analyzed there. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's basically why. Well, let's, let's uh, wrap it up with one more final question. For those who are just getting into elections, just getting into politics, and just getting maybe into journalism, um, what would you recommend them to start doing? Um, well, just, I mean, ultimately what you got to do is just learn. So however that works for you talking to people, reading up things, uh, you know, the more, the more you are just in the space, the more just soft knowledge you just pick up from being around people mm -hmm. and the more well-versed that makes you in talking to people. Uh, like, I, so I, I couldn't tell you, you know, how much this county in Kansas swung this between this election and this election, but like, I can at least empathize and I can like understand and, you know, make the connections that other people who do know that type of thing are talking. And once you're in that space, it'll be much easier for you to, you know, jump onto the bandwagon of whatever it is you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I did plenty, you know, I, I've hung out plenty with election analysts online and in person and, you know, done a lot in the campaign space. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I really do think that's helped shape who I have become as, mm -hmm. as, as an analyst. Uh, and definitely for who I hope to be, uh, I think it is it is good to just, you know, keep getting out there and to keep learning. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Armin, thank you once again for joining us. You can follow his work on Elections Daily and even on his Twitter account. That's going to wrap things up for today. I want to thank Armin for coming on. And next, and next time, we're going to have a big one. We're going to have David Shore join us on Sit Down for a Toss-Up. I'm Adam Bass. Take care and good night.